0: Well, good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I am so glad I get to open the Bible with you this morning. Uh, If you could pull that book out, I assume you either brought one or you probably have one on your phone. So pull that out, put it on your lap and have it ready. I would love for you to follow along uh, with the words as we read the passage. We're going to be in Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. So if you can turn there, that'd be fantastic. Who wants to talk about church discipline? Right. Yikes, right? Who just thought of a big, scary, formal procedure of termination? The pull string or break glass in case of emergency in dealing with sin. The intimidating last resort. Who thought of removal from community? Or maybe the word excommunication came to mind, expelled out of community. When we hear that phrase, church discipline, it is often a reference to the passage we're going to go through today. And often the default thoughts are the ones I just described, those big thoughts, those scary thoughts. Oh, I hope I never have to deal with that. But rightly defined, the process of church discipline is a beautiful process by which the church engages the sinner. It is not a last resort, it is a first resort. Sin is a given in our world. We give space in our service every week, we've already done it this morning, we give space every week for us to acknowledge that sin is everywhere. And we confess our own sin. We acknowledge that the world is broken and weighed down by sin, and that we are all participants in that. We acknowledge because we want to turn to sin. And we acknowledge because sin is a killer. Because of this reality, any community must figure out how to deal with sin. We have to figure out what to do with sinners, because each of you is a sinner, right? And each of you will sin again. And you know this because of your past performance. You've already done it. And tomorrow's coming. So, any community has to figure out what do we do? What do we do when it occurs? What do I do when I sin? What are we supposed to do when we see sin? Who will help me? These are great questions and ones that Jesus answers in our passage this morning. Jesus is the self-described shepherd of the sheep, the one who desires to pursue the ones who go astray so he can bring them back and so he can rejoice. He will tell his church, tell us, how a church ought to respond to sinners and to sin. And this morning, as we read, as we Walk through this passage, we will see that in the church, sinners are pursued to be gained for the kingdom. In the church, sinners are pursued to be gained for the kingdom. Now, we, before we talk about this morning's passage, I want to remind us of the context in which this sits. Where does it sit? It's in chapter 18, right? Of the book of Matthew. And Jesus has been talking, what has He been talking about in this chapter? He's been talking a lot about sin. If, you're, if you've been here the last four weeks, you know this is the fourth week of chapter 18. And he has been talking about sin and specifically what our response should be to sin. And what the Father's posture is to sin. If you recall, at the beginning of the chapter, the disciples came up and said, Hey Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And he essentially said, wrong question. And talked about how you gain entry into the kingdom in the first place. He said, entrance into the kingdom is with the humility of a child. And in verse 6, he says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's serious. Do you think about sin that seriously? Then he talks about the need to ferociously, decisively deal with the temptation that pull us towards sin. Cut away the things that entangle you. It is far more important that you enter the kingdom than it is to remain intact and never gain the kingdom. And then last week we looked at Jesus describing the shepherd's pursuit of the straying sheep to bring the sheep back to the fold to the other 99. He said in verse 12 of this, of this chapter, he said, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. A shepherd rejoicing at the return of the stray sheep. To make it crystal clear, we are the sheep. And at any given season of life, one of you has been the stray. The wayward one. The one that wandered off away from the flock of God. And this is the posture of the Father. This is the posture of Jesus. He goes and gets you he goes and pursues the stray sheep that's good news right and perhaps last week you were listening and you're saying yeah that's good news i like that cool story nice analogy but how does that happen what does it look like and jesus continues to talk in chapter 18 And he will describe the posture and he puts it into the practical. Jesus will describe the practice. How do we practice this posture? And he starts in verse 15. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This whole dealing with sin thing is getting real, right? If your brother sins, or if your brother wanders off like one of the sheep, what do you do? That's what Jesus is talking about. And first, let me, let me level set. If you notice, it, we are I am reading from the ESV text, the English Standard Version. You, you're probably reading that. And if you're reading that, it says, if your brother sins against you, okay? And if you're reading from the NIV, the New International Version, it may just say, if your brother sins, okay, what's going on? It doesn't say against you. Did you know the Bible is very, very, very old? And and Matthew, the, the book of Matthew is very, very, very old. And we do not have the original first editions. It's not like we have like a signed copy from Matthew. We have copies of the original first editions. And when these copies were made, there were no photocopiers. Really difficult. And what does that mean? It means people who love Jesus and wanted more people to have this book, they took out a pen and they copied things word by word. And if you ever were to look through this book, there are a lot of words here. And we have many, many copies of the different books of the Bible. In fact, more and better copies than any ancient piece of literature out there. It's amazing, it's incredible. And some of our copies are very, very old, and some of them are only very old. And when we are dealing with some very old copies of the original text, sometimes they're not always perfectly aligned with each other. So in this particular passage, some of our oldest copies just say, and if your brother sins, and then it's done and it keeps moving on. And then some that are slightly less old add, and if your brother sins against you, and then it keeps going. So in order to give us as close to a faithful text as possible, the English Standard Version adds that little extra, and sometimes if you're reading in the Bible, or especially in the um, original language, it'll put a little footnote and say, hey, just so you know, in the older copies, it's not there. So I want you to take two things away from this. On the general level, this is a huge book. And the fact that the, that the things we are not 100% certain on amount to a few words here and there, that's Amazing. That gives me great confidence that we have a faithful and accurate Bible, and God is gracious to us in preserving this book over thousands of years by the work of copiers. It's amazing. And then more specifically, what do we do with this passage? Should we read it this way, or should we read it this way? Is it narrow, only dealing with sins against me, and then I'm off the hook, I don't have to deal with anything else? Or is it more general, when a brother sins at all? Even if this passage is the more narrow option, there are similar passages about the posture of a brother or sister to their brother or sister's sin in the Bible. This is not the only time we talk about sin in the Bible. Is that a surprise? <laughs> One time is in Luke, another time is in James, and they both keep it general. If your brother sins, Luke says. Or in James, if anyone wanders from the truth, it sounds like the shepherd, the shepherd and the sheep analogy, Right? So even if this passage were particularly narrow in its application, we would still, as members of Christ's community, need to deal with all our brother's sin the same way as this. And in addition, if you are a member of Christ's community or specifically a member of this community, you say, I'm a member of New Life Church, you have covenanted yourself. You have promised yourself to live life in a certain way here. We say it like this here at New Life Church. If you're a member here, you have made this promise to each other. You'll remember, you'll, you'll recognize this as I say it. It says, On the basis that we serve a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, we joyfully and resolutely enter into covenant community with one another. We promise by God's grace and through the indwelling presence of His Spirit to live lives in keeping with the truth of the gospel, continually repenting of our sin and walking by faith in newness of life. So if you are covenanted to this community, there is no anonymous sin. It's also against the community. So we can run with this as a posture. When we see sin by a brother or a sister, we can use this. This is the the practical posture of Jesus. We can use this. So with that, we can dig in. If your brother or your sister sins, what do you do? To sin is to miss the mark. To sin is act is to act and live and move in a way that is outside the designs of God. We are created and formed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And secondly, secondly we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Any deviation from that, any perversion of those directions, either to God or to others, is sin. If I give my heart to something else and love it like I should love God, it is sin. This is where we get idolatry. If I cheat or lie to my brother, this is a deficiency of love. It is sin. If your brother or sister sins, what do you do? And Jesus says, go and tell him his fault. Talk to him. Just you and him. And you point it out. Maybe those conversations go something like this, brother, I notice that you say things that are not true when you relay stories or you exaggerate some of those details. Or sister, the way you talked about that person devalued her. Would you have said that if she was here with us? Or brother, I've noticed that you respond to others with an edge of anger. It seems to grip you. Can we talk about that? Or sister, you seem to be engaging unhealthy comparison to others as your means of value. You seem to love the affections of people in place of the affection of God. Or brother, I notice sometimes you seem to be giving your heart and your soul and your strength to your work at the expense of giving it to God. Can we talk about that? And the examples are as varied as the people in this room. And any of these are a call to turn around, either to love the Lord properly with heart, soul, mind, and strength, or to love a neighbor as yourself. There is an implicit invitation to repent, to turn around, to stop doing what you are doing, and to walk back to community, to God's design to act in truth and righteousness. And here's the goal. If he listens to you, You have gained your brother. If she listens, you have won her back. The shepherd rejoices. This is good news. This is exactly what you want. This is what it looks like to have the posture of the shepherd from the story before. You have your eyes up, you see people walking, and then you see one go the wrong direction, and you talk to them. You go to them and hope they walk back with you so you can rejoice. And what is this sin? Is it only the big stuff? Only the dramatic things? Only the things that cross the line? When it becomes so big and obvious, it is egregious? For yourselves, friends, beware the downplaying of sin. I pray that we do not remain comfortable with our sin any amount. No amount of sin is helpful for us. No amount of sin helps us to remain engaged to the community. Sin is a killer. No amount is not a poison. In fact, it is the presence of sin that is a strain to community. So where you see sin, you see something, the end of which is to break and pull and kill. It is worth speaking about because it is the beginning of a straying. It is the beginning of a wayward walk. Now to that end, I'm going to go talk. What do I do? This conversation doesn't need to be intense. You don't need to schedule a meeting and have a sit down and do all these big things. It can fit with what and how you have observed it, when you observed it. It may be as simple as pulling someone to the side at the end of life group. Hey, can I talk to you real quick? or just make a quick phone call. The weight of a scheduled meeting is not always necessary. And the more this is practiced, the more helpful it will be and the cadence will become more na- natural. I know I've erred in the past by making, oh, I got to do a meeting. I got to th- do this thing and schedule it. It's too escalated. But I feel as I practice, this kind of talk in community becomes more natural, It becomes more welcomed, frankly. Take courage and talk to your brother, speak to your sister. This is the practice of keeping the sheep connected to the community so you can rejoice that they are no longer wayward. And this starts with you. The individual. Jesus is describing using each of you to do this work of finding the sheep and bringing them back. He is using us to go and find them. This is profound. This is powerful. The heart of Jesus is to go find the stray, and his means is you, the members of his community. You are the tools to bring them back. You are the implements that bring about joy. How often do you do step one? Do you observe the sin and go talk to the brother? It is hard, right? Especially when we're not practiced. And we do so many other things instead. We see it and then we minimize it. Ah, it's, not, it's not a big deal. It's just, it's just a little thing. We ignore it. I, I see nothing. We abandon. I'm just not going to engage that person anymore. I'm just going to avoid. We write them off. Or perhaps it just sticks in our head and we don't actually have the conversation, so we end up passive-aggressively just sniping them in conversation. Or maybe we talk to someone else about it first. That's not what this passage says. Or maybe we try to escalate it to others. The pastors probably need to deal with this. The elders, this is a sin thing. It's above my pay grade. No, friends, it is at your pay grade. You are the front line of God rescuing the strays. Don't abandon the joy that comes through the pursuit. You all belong to the kingdom community, and Jesus is describing the normal life in the assembly of his kingdom people. Sin is dealt with differently in this community because we know sin is a foreign agent that should be expelled. It makes no sense to accommodate it. And because sin is ubiquitous, because it's everywhere all the time, this process should be normal and a frequent rhythm of this community, the community that belongs to the coming sin-free kingdom. And the more this is practiced, the less intense it becomes. These are scary conversations if you never have them or only engage them for the most heinous examples. Of course, the conversation will be horrible if you have observed the sin for years and now you finally have to try and talk about it. How far away is the sheep? That is a long way home. Start small. And let's be honest, these are often welcome conversations for the sinner. Who here is just tickled when they sin? I just love that. Just love it. No, we hate it. We hate sinning. Sin is a shame giver. Sin is an isolator. And so many of us have sat here ashamed sitting in our sin and just hoped someone would come help us. Someone would come ask us the question, did you know you're going this direction? I, uh, yes, please help me. Right? And don't you want to know when you are straying? Don't you want the loving eyes of the community on you to such a degree that they can pull you aside and invite you to come back in? Don't you want that? Have you grown mature enough to not trust yourself in isolation and know you need to live life in community? That is the path of joy, friends. The goal is to gain your brother, gain your sister, and we are all prone to wander, and I want, and you want to be gained, don't you? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If she hears you, you have won your sister. And he continues, but if he does not listen, Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Obviously, sometimes this conversation will not go the way we hope it will. Sometimes he does not listen. Sometimes she does not repent. Sometimes he does not return. So we try again and we take one or two along. It is still a small interaction. A couple others are added who can confirm the fault and say, yes, brother, we see this. Come back. Don't walk this way. Don't go that direction. And the hope here remains restoration. The goal is to gain the brother, to gain the sister. The hope is that a little more weight, a little more intensity will bring clarity for this brother. The implicit possible outcome is the brother says, yes, thank you for telling me. I'm sorry it took this to make me see it, but I repent, I turn around. And this uses the language of witnesses. This is obviously the context of community, people who can confirm and have observed. This is not the language of a gang fight where I have people to stand by me to raise my volume and make me scarier. These are people in community who have seen and also desire the brother or sister to turn around. Some sheep are harder to find, right? Sometimes it takes a couple people to bring them back. But that is the goal. Bring him back. Restoration. Turning around so we can rejoice. And Jesus continues, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is two refusals, even with some escalation. So your job as someone pursuing the sheep, trying to pull them back, is to tell it to the church. Bring the greater community into the conversation. This is clearly a more formal step, right? Calling in the authority of the church gathered. In our context, the most fitting way to do this would be to bring in the elders for West Lynn. You would talk to the elders. This doesn't mean... Oh, I'm, I'm going to initiate a whisper campaign now and build support against someone. What is the goal here? It's still restoration. The goal is restoration. The desire is to gain them back, not to pit against them. And the hope remains even if we have even more of the flock, if the, the, the desired end is that if we have more of the flock calling a person back, that will bring clarity. And light to them so they see and understand and desire to turn around and repent. And in that case, we what? We rejoice. We are glad they have been restored. And you should see here a lessening of frequency, almost like a funnel. Most often, the first level will occur a lot, less so the second and even less so the third, and then the final after the refusal, that should happen least of all. In fact, these first two levels should be commonplace because sin is commonplace. And our call to love each other, to love and serve the brotherhood, requires us to care enough to reach out about these things frequently. And by and large, the result of these two levels of conversation, that first one, just you and the person, that second one with a couple others, By and large, the results will be rejoicing. By and large, the response will be, thank you for talking to me. Thank you for calling me out. Will you pray with me? Will you help me? I don't want to go this direction anymore, but it's really hard. Can you help me walk the other way? That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? And this third option could be met the same way. The whole community says, come this way, and they repent, and we rejoice. But if this third and final option is met with refusal, then the nature of the relationship necessarily changes. Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This was a shorthand way for the Jewish community to describe someone who is outside the community. Gentiles, literally non-Jews, are not in the community, right? Right? Tax collectors, those aligned with the oppressive occupiers, are not in the community. They are outsiders. They're on the outside. A lack of repentance, even in the face of the whole community, asking you to turn around is the cause of being treated like an outsider. And it, in short, is confirmation that you are not acting like a member of the community. And can you see the long suffering of the community desiring to restore you? One goes to you, I don't want to talk. Two or three appeal to you, please turn around, I don't want to talk about it. The community appeals to you, in the face of it all, you are intransigent, unrepenting, hard hearted. You've placed yourself on the outside. This is sad. Our hope is restoration. Our hope is repentance. Our goal is never to get to this step because the first and second steps happen so frequently that no escalation is ever needed. And I just want to know, it is not the nature or the severity of the specific sin that causes the disconnection, that causes the outsider status. It is the unrepentant heart, the refusing ears, One could have a small observed sin by a brother, but it is the refusal to listen that is the cause of the break from the community. It is the unwillingness to be continually repenting of our sin and walking by faith in newness of life. It is the lack of willingness to hear people point out sin that has someone as the outsider. The unrepentant is on the outside. There is a difference in relationship. But what is the nature of that relationship? Perhaps if we were to ask that question of the Jewish community of that day, they would think of a manner of shunning or complete and total disconnection. We can't talk to you anymore. We can't look to you anymore. If we see you on the street, we're going to turn our head. But if you're reading your Bible and wondering the answer to these questions, you should read more of your Bible. That's always a good answer, right? How did Jesus engage tax collectors? and Gentiles, or tax collectors and sinners, he engaged them with the good news. If we were to rewind in this story that Matthew is telling and go back to Matthew 9, in verse 10, it says this, and, G- and as Jesus reclined at table in, this ha- in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus engaged. He had meals with those disconnected from God and told them the good news Told them the gospel, told them the reality that the one who makes the sick well is here. So we in the community go outside to engage the outsider with the good news of the gospel. They are outside of the community, but we still want them to be connected to Jesus. We still want them to repent. We still want them to be in the community. At some point, we want them not on the outside, but the inside. There can be pursuit to the outsiders. Now if you're thinking, well then nothing changes. If I can go have a meal with them, if I can talk a little bit about spiritual things, I can tell them the gospel, it's the same type of relationship. Friends, if that's what you're thinking, if that is the case, any any lack of difference in connection between what we normally do with our covenant community and and what we do with the outsiders, with the Gentiles and the tax collectors, any difference, any lack of difference is an indictment of our deficiency of community. The covenant community is doing something far more than just occasionally eating together and having some spiritual conversations from time to time. And this very passage shows us that, right? One, we are engaged in this type of process about sin. We are committed to each other. We live life together. We show up. We bear one another's burdens. We serve together. We weep together. We rejoice together. We do the one another's described in Scripture, practicing them in small communities. We call them life groups here. To the the degree that you are connected to that, the prospect of being disconnected from that is appalling. I don't want to be on the outside. I want to be fully connected. Maybe as you sit here, you now realize you're not as connected as you could be. Plug in. You can do that today. Commit to a life group, be vulnerable there. Experience connected community. Do you want to be fully connected? Do you want to deal with sin this way? Many of you are members at New Life Church, so you are already committed. You've you've made that promise. When I read that, you said, oh yeah, I've said that before. I've said that to you guys. But I want to encourage you to give this community an invitation. We've already admitted these conversations are hard, right? But as a potential recipient, they are desirable. I want people to pursue me this way. Why don't you tell your community that you want this? I know you all have your phones with you. You could send a text to your life group. I'm I'm sure you guys have a group thread for your life group. You could do that right now. Or to the people here that you know the most, just text them. I want to be pursued this way. And just write Matthew 18, 15 through 17. I'll wait. Some of you are on the phone, text them. Or just write a note to send a text later. Get the benefit of how you feel about this right now. Help out your future self, right? This whole process, this whole process is the practical outworking of the posture of Jesus to wayward sinners. I want to be engaged with that. I want to be connected to that. This is the posture of the king rescuing a people. And this king has a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus continues to embolden and encourage this process by revealing the connection of the church and the kingdom. He's going to ramp it up In verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Truly I say to you, and he repeats what he told Peter in chapter 16. Do you recall that? Whatever you bind or loose shall be bound or loosed in heaven. If you recall when we talked about that in chapter 16, in his conversation with Peter, this power described as the authority to set the rules and norms for the group. We have this church, this ekklesia in the Greek, this assembly, that's a political term. Just like the assembly that is gathering down in Salem, the legislative assembly, this assembly, this ekklesia is a political term. This assembly is gathered and authority is given to set the norms, to look at scripture and say, this is sin and this is not. You are straying and we want to bring you back. That way is wayward. And there is a connection between the assembly and the heaven and kingdom. There is a connection between the coming kingdom and this local embassy of the coming kingdom. This embassy is of the coming kingdom and the rules and norms for the church match, not the world, but the coming kingdom it represents. And the astounding thing here is not that this authority is mentioned again. That would just be Jesus repeating himself. But the authority in chapter 18, is given to the church, to the ecclesia. The you here is plural. It was singular when he was talking to Peter. Now he says, you all. All those engaging this process of bringing back the strays are included in this. You are all part of helping this gathering deal with sin in a way that mirrors heaven. This little embassy is doing the work. It confirms What is established to be permitted by the king and what is not? That's the work you guys are doing. And when we ignore or minimize or check out, we abandon this authority and responsibility. Jesus says this to confirm that the church has been given the authority to deal with sin in the way he has already described. And he builds it up even more. In verse 19, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus is saying here in the work of dealing with sin, of calling to repentance, even the engagement of two people is enough. Picture those two people calling the brother to repentance in that second meeting. They agreed that it was sin and they pursued the brother together. The Father works in those situations. When we agree on Jesus... In his rule for life and engage our brothers, we are doing the work of the father. And are those two praying that the brother or sister is one back? That's probably what's going on, right? Are they asking the father that a repentant heart would be present in their brother? Or if it's escalated all the way, are they confirming an unrepentant heart and an outsider status? This is confirmation that the binding and the loosing authority has been given. The Father is involved in the work. And even more so, Jesus says, There am I among them. Only a few times does Jesus say, He will be with us in Matthew. One of them is at the end of the book when he says, To engage the work of making disciples, and I am with you always. It's encouraging. And here, if you are engaging the work of recovering the strays, of dealing with sin, of calling people to repentance, Jesus says, There I am among you. Because when you are doing this, you are the tool the great shepherd is using to bring back the one sheep to the 99. Do you want to be that connected to Jesus? Do you want to be close to where he promises to be? Then pursue the brother that goes astray. Then run towards the sister that went away. Commit to this community and desire not yourself nor any of your brothers or sisters to sit complacently with sin. In that work, the work of restoration, the work of recovery, the work of the gentle invitation to repentance, and the walking back to community, there Jesus is. This is not a promise for Jesus to be involved in any flippant pursuit that a couple Christians can put together. This is a promise to be present in the hard work of confronting the killer, confronting sin. This is amazing. This is hard work, but it is work in which Jesus is intimately involved. He's not going to leave you by yourself to do this. And it only takes a few Two or three, if they are gathered, agreeing in the name of Jesus and calling people back to the life of Jesus, Jesus is there. Friends, this posture towards sin need not be a scary last resort. This is the first resort. Jesus, the king, set up a church, an assembly, an embassy that deals with sin, and he promises to be there in the midst of the work. He set us up and gave us steps to do the work of pursuing those who have gone astray. This is a first resort because we all go astray. And when we wander off the path, the engagement of a brother or sister who is for your joy and desires to gain you back into community, it's a welcome help, right? There is an opportunity for engagement when one takes you to the side and says, where are you going? And you get the opportunity to walk back with them. That is the work of a community that resembles the kingdom. That is the posture of a community that has the posture of Jesus, the King of that kingdom. King Jesus, the one so committed to rescuing the strays that he took death on a cross to be able to secure our reconciliation. So the work of gaining a brother is not powerless or empty. And the Father raised him from the dead so that his promise to be with us in this work is secured forever. Jesus came to earth to deal with the lost sheep. He did all that is necessary to rescue the one and bring it back. And he has set us up to be the people that participate in that work with him until his kingdom comes with all its sinless beauty. And he is actively present when we together call each other to repent of our sin and join that community. In the church, sinners are pursued to be gained for the kingdom. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Jesus, it is truly amazing that you include us in the beautiful work of rescuing wayward sinners. I ask that you would impress that upon us and that we would not first think of the difficulty of some of these conversations but instead the beauty of being pursued. I pray as as a result of us applying your words we would see a changed community. That our community would be marked by those who are continually gained rather than those we let slip away. Give each of us a humility that when we are talked to we respond by listening, and by coming back. Give us all the desire to be gained and pursued, and may we all so hate the presence of sin, we are glad when someone reaches out to help us brush it away. Lord, make your presence in this work obvious to us and give us joy in repenting of sin. Encourage us in the truth of your work, even as we sing in response. Amen.